The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. The Mueller Report, we're already seeing it. This is Thursday, December 13th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news by patronizing my sponsors and with the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Those of us who've wondered when the Mueller report's coming out or whether a Trump loyal attorney general can stop it can take a breath. A large part of Mueller's report's already been published a chapter at a time in various court filings and indictments. Three chapters were published on Tuesday in court papers filed by special counsel Robert Mueller and by federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. The investigations have not stopped, and increasingly, it appears they won't be. The fruits of some of those investigative labors are now visible to us without interference. To prevent meddling, Mueller hid them in plain sight. Sure, many paragraphs have been redacted in the documents we've seen so far. Those are teases for the chapters yet to come. And Mueller's court papers are much more detailed than court papers normally are to make certain that proof of guilt is overwhelming and crystal clear, which indicates Mueller's leading up to something. Mueller and other federal prosecutors have made clear there is mercy for those who tell nothing but the whole truth, as was the case with former Trump National Security Advisor Mike Flynn. Mueller says no prison time for Flynn, please, since Flynn's been so very helpful in 62 hours and 45 minutes of interviews. Without hesitation, even before pleading guilty, Flynn held back nothing as he turned over thousands of documents and all of his electronic devices without complaint. A 33-year veteran of the Army who'd served in Iraq and Afghanistan, his lawyers told the judge in their court papers that Flynn was truly sorry for his errors in judgment and that he was working to make things right. Mueller agrees and is grateful for Flynn's cooperation. Most of the redacted material in the sentence agreement that Mueller drew up for Flynn refers to other investigations in which Flynn has also been helpful, investigations Mueller will reveal as those cases progress. The judge, however, might be uncomfortable with giving a pass to someone who had, in a position of public trust, committed crimes and then lied to the FBI about it. But as far as Mueller is concerned, no jail time for Flynn. Flynn and the rest of us will find out his sentence this coming Tuesday. Mueller and other federal prosecutors have also made clear there is little mercy for those who lie or those who tell only part of the truth. Former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort will spend the rest of his life in prison if the judge agrees with Mueller's sentencing recommendation. Mueller's throwing the book at Manafort. Mueller has no beef, however, with former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen, who's also been extremely helpful to the Russia probe. No jail time for Cohen, as far as Mueller's concerned. Federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, however, say that for them, Cohen wasn't nearly as cooperative as he should have been, and they asked the judge to give Cohen four years in prison. They say Cohen was pretty helpful on some things, but refused to confess to any other crimes he may have committed, having never cut a plea deal with them as he'd done with Mueller, who wasn't interested in Cohen's other crimes. The Southern District prosecutor said Cohen had stolen millions in tax money from Uncle Sam and damaged people's faith in our elections and our legal system. Still, yesterday Cohen got to speak before hearing his sentence of three years over the hush money payments made to benefit the Trump campaign. Cohen told the judge he felt as though he'd already served three years, as though he were in mental and personal incarceration. He got three years for crimes he says he committed at the direction of the man who's now commander-in-chief. And Cohen says he's ready to cooperate more, answer more questions, and that could reduce his time in prison even further. So what have we learned from this flurry of courtroom drama and sentencing recommendations? What have we learned in these substantial parts of the Mueller report that we have seen so far? Mueller can now prove that Manafort was in touch with the White House long after rumors of Russia ties forced Manafort out of the campaign. Mueller can now prove Manafort stayed in contact with the campaign, the transition, and the White House 16 months after the inauguration, even after he'd been indicted and even after Manafort had lied about that. Mueller can prove Manafort lied about his contacts with Russian intelligence operative Konstantin Kalimnik and about an investigation that promises to be one of those future chapters. 
The special counsel has also learned that Mike Flynn urged Russia not to retaliate for Obama's interference sanctions on Russia, assuring Russia those sanctions would be lifted by Trump. Flynn also likely told Mueller whether anyone, including Trump, instructed him to make Russia that offer. That would be a crime, since citizens are prohibited from making foreign policy deals with other governments, and Trump and Flynn were still both private citizens at the time. It was Flynn who told Mueller that he'd ask Russia to cast a no vote at the U.N. Flynn has reportedly revealed it was Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who asked him to reach out to Russia about that. And that would also be a crime. And from Michael Cohen, Mueller has learned that Trump was lying to the public at the height of the campaign when he said he had no business ties to Russia. Cohen has told Mueller all about Trump's long-pursued goal of a skyscraper in Moscow with his name on it and about how a Russian bank would finance it and how this continued for the first year of Trump's 16-month presidential campaign, continued until just about four months before Election Day, and how they had all lied about it. Mueller has revealed that Trump's company could have made hundreds of millions of dollars from Russian oligarchs for licensing fees and more for that Moscow Tower. And then there are the hush money payments and the money paid to Michael Cohen for handling a couple of possible scandals at the height of the campaign. Cohen had asked that he be reimbursed for the 180 grand he would spent on the campaign, $130,000 for the hush money to Stormy Daniels, another 50000 for some technology for the campaign. Cohen was ultimately repaid. $420,000, more than enough to cover his work and a little extra for his own silence, perhaps. Trump did reimburse Cohen, but was then himself reimbursed by his own company, reportedly at Trump's own direction. And then the company sent Cohen more money. It's gotten Cohen charged with campaign finance law violations and for lying about it, and Cohen's pleading guilty to both. Trump has also lied about those payments, and if he knew ordering those payoffs were likely an illegal campaign contributions, that's a felony on Trump as well. Mueller now appears to be looking at the involvement of other senior officials in the Trump organization, including its chief financial officer and Trump's eldest son, his eldest daughter, and her husband in the decision to repay Trump for that hush money and the handling of those scandals by Michael Cohen. In making his sentencing recommendation for Michael Cohen, Mueller made it clear that Cohen has implicated the president in at least two felonies. The court will demand that Mueller show criminal intent on Trump's part, but Mueller is nothing if not thorough, as his court filings have demonstrated so far. Mueller's recommendation on Cohen says Trump's ex-lawyer, quote, admitted he acted in coordination with and at the direction of individual one when hush money was paid to alleged mistresses to protect Trump's campaign. For the first time, there are court documents linking Trump to federal crimes. He has now reached the Nixon threshold as an unindicted co-conspirator. As such, Trump is now also fodder for impeachment. The United States Department of Justice is calling the president a felon, accusing him of defrauding American voters and thereby questioning whether he's even a legitimate president. In one Cohen court filing, prosecutors wrote, while many Americans who desired a particular outcome to the election knocked on doors, toiled at phone banks, or found any number of other legal ways to make their voices heard, Cohen sought to influence the election from the shadows. And, say the prosecutors, Cohen did this at the direction of the man who claimed the presidency. John Dean the man who was Nixon's White House lawyer and a key witness in the Watergate investigation says Congress will now have little choice but to start the impeachment of Donald Trump, just as it had with Nixon. The incoming head of the House Judiciary Committee says the charges we've all just witnessed would be impeachable offenses. The incoming head of the House Intelligence Committee says the president now faces, quote, the real prospect of prison time as soon as he leaves office. For whatever it may be worth, Republican Senator Marco Rubio is warning Trump it would be a mistake to pardon Paul Manafort. We are witnessing history at its most dramatic. The special counsel had not yet filed the papers he was prepared to file on Manafort and Cohen, but the papers were due that day, and Trump, 
launched a preemptive strike. It was the usual series of the usual angry tweets about Mueller's supposed conflicts of interest and how he just picks on Republicans and turns a blind eye to the supposed crimes of Democrats, especially that darned Hillary Clinton. Trump had already laid some groundwork praising Manafort for his efforts to hurt the Mueller probe and condemning the cooperative Cohen as a weak person. The angry tweets continued off and on through the weekend. By Monday morning, the Twitterverse was mocking Trump for his misspelling twice in one tweet, the word smoking, as in no smoking gun. Trump called the payoffs to his alleged mistresses a simple private transaction and not the campaign finance violation Democrats were making it out to be. He blamed Michael Cohen, calling it a lawyer's mistake and that, if anything, it's a civil offense, not a criminal offense. But it was apparently Trump who ordered Cohen to make those payments, and ignorance of the law is no excuse. Previous candidates have also committed campaign violations, but they immediately filed new, more accurate reports and paid the fines, instead of trying to hide the violations for more than a year, as was the case with the Trump campaign. Also over the weekend, Trump tweeted another attack on former FBI Director James Comey, who had just testified for Republicans looking for dirt on the Russia investigation. And then, night before last, we learned of yet another investigation involving the 2016 Trump campaign. The FBI, we learned, is investigating whether a top Russian banker connected to the Kremlin funneled money illegally to the NRA, which then donated a record $30 million to Trump's campaign, nearly triple what it had spent four years earlier on Mitt Romney and more than any other single conservative group had spent in 2016. The nearly $70 million spent by the NRA on Trump and other pro-gun candidates in 2016 was spent by a branch of the association that does not have to make public its donors. We do know most of the money was spent on pro-Trump, anti-Hillary TV ads, on the local news shows of 120 stations, along with Jeopardy! and Wheel of Fortune, targeting 35- to 64-year-old voters at the dinner hour. The group bought 52 such ads just on the ABC affiliate in Norfolk, Virginia. They focused on sporting events, live programming in which it is not possible to skip commercials. The gun group's ad buys were mirrored by those of the Trump campaign. Same messages, same shows, same stations, as if they were coordinated, and all in the same numbers. The purchases were made by a company called National Media Research Planning and Placement for both the Trump campaign and the NRA. It's long been established, even confirmed by Putin, that Russia wanted Trump to win the presidency and that Russia put forth considerable effort to make that happen. For more than two years now, there's been mounting evidence that the National Rifle Association was one of the tools in Russia's toolbox. During that two years, while we were all watching the rest of it, U.S. prosecutors and three congressional committees were investigating the NRA's relationship with Russia and its financial support of Trump. That top Russian banker who's a target in the investigation is Alexander Torshin, who's oddly connected with both Vladimir Putin and the NRA. Torshin ran a gun rights group for the Kremlin in a country that has virtually no gun rights. The Russian gun rights group only function was to liaison with gun rights groups in the U.S. The Kremlin even flew NRA officials to Moscow for a little bonding, all expenses paid. Quoting one of those hosted by the Kremlin, they were killing us with vodka and the best Russian food. Russian group leader and wealthy banker Alexander Torshin has now been implicated in money laundering by authorities in Spain. He also spoke at the NRA's 2016 convention, along with Donald Trump Jr. Alexander Torshin also attended the National Prayer Breakfast shortly after Trump's inauguration. His invitation to a presidential meet-and-greet was canceled, though after White House officials learned of Torshin's mob connections. Torshin tried at least twice to meet with Trump Sr., but it never happened. Torshin also had an employee in the U.S., a 30-year-old Russian redhead named Maria Butina, whose job it was to cozy up to conservative groups in the U.S., especially gun rights groups. She has now agreed to plead guilty to operating as an unregistered foreign agent and guilty to conspiracy, and she's also agreed to cooperate fully with federal prosecutors who are also investigating her boyfriend on a similar charge. 
Maria Butina is officially being charged in court today. Butina, who originally pleaded not guilty, has now agreed to tell all about her boyfriend, American Paul Erickson, who has visited her every week since she was arrested back in July. She will hand over her financial documents as well as answer questions and testify before grand juries and any other court trials that may come out of this case. With Maria Butina's cooperation after six months in prison, this outed Russian spy is likely to be sentenced to time served. What happens next to this disabled Russian spy is unclear, except that she will likely be deported back to Russia. What happens now to the NRA is unclear. It's already laying off people from one of its media divisions. What happens to Donald Trump is coming into focus. Also flipping on the president, the company that publishes the National Enquirer. Asking for immunity, American media executive David Pecker actually flipped late last summer as investigators studied the hush money paid to alleged Trump mistress Karen McDougal. But yesterday, prosecutors announced that American Media Inc. was cooperating in the probe of hush money paid to silence women who could have hurt the Trump campaign in the final weeks before the election, and that, therefore, Pecker and his company would avoid prosecution. Those hush money payments are considered illegal campaign contributions that not only went unreported, they were covered up. Prosecutors have learned it was the pro-Trump National Enquirer that had tipped off Michael Cohen that Stormy Daniels was trying to sell her story. And though the Enquirer had no hand in that payoff, it did pay $150,000 to Ms. McDougal for the exclusive rights to her story for the purpose of never publishing it and making sure no one else did either. At one point, Pecker and Cohen agreed Cohen would repay $125,000 of the payoff, but Pecker later called off that deal and asked Cohen to tear up the paperwork, which Michael Cohen did not do. Voters have long debated with themselves and with others the amount of attention that should be given to a Trump tweet. Journalists have had that same debate. The Mueller investigation may show us the way. The special prosecutor's latest court filings show that he is paying attention to Trump's tweets, some of them. The one in April of this year, in which Trump seemed to admit collusion and or obstruction of justice with the words, no collusion or obstruction other than I fight back. Or the one last year, right after he told Lester Holt he fired Comey because of the Russia probe that claimed he didn't fire Comey because of the Russia probe. Or the one where he said Comey had better hope there are no tapes of our conversations. And, of course, all the tweets in which Trump attacks the FBI, the Justice Department, his former attorney general, Robert Mueller, all of Mueller's investigators, to name a few, to shore up the motive for obstruction of justice. Mueller's also collected tweets from Trump's close advisor, Roger Stone, as well as from Michael Cohen and George Papadopoulos. Last week... We put up sort of a mental post-it note to remind us about Vice President Mike Pence, about how he led the transition team and okayed Mike Flynn as national security advisor, even after getting written notice that Flynn was acting as a foreign agent. Thanks to Mueller's court filing on Flynn, we now know that the transition team was very involved in Flynn's dealings with Russia. As head of the transition, it seems inconceivable Pence wouldn't know about it. It would also be surprising to learn that Pence didn't know about Paul Manafort's relationship with the transition team, which would continue beyond Manafort's resignation from the campaign, beyond the campaign itself, beyond the transition team, and even into the Trump presidency. It was Flynn who recommended Trump choose Pence as VP, and it was Pence who approved Mike Flynn for national security. Remember, Mueller has had in his possession since early this year all of the transition team's emails. We now know that Pence lied when he defended Mike Flynn on Fox News. We now know that Pence did know Flynn had committed perjury about his contacts with Russia. To take this any further would be getting ahead of ourselves. But we are going to need a bigger post-it note. The news that White House Chief of Staff John Kelly would be out before the year is has made a lot of people nervous, Republicans and Democrats alike, and for the same reasons. For all his own flaws, John Kelly has been the loudest voice of reason in the Oval Office. He's considered to be the guy who's kept Trump even this much under control. 
Kelly's been the rock in a sea of turmoil, the stabilizer, and now he's leaving, and Republicans and Democrats are worried. But especially Republicans, who've also seen these developments that we've all witnessed these past two weeks in the Russia investigation. They've seen that Mike Flynn had met with Mueller's team 19 times and realized this is more serious than they thought or wanted to believe. They're worried about Trump's talk of pardoning Manafort. The party of Trump is now worried about its figurehead. If he goes down, will they? Republicans in Congress are worried that the White House has no actual plan to deal with an expanding Mueller probe and in the midst of all the other pressing business, including the trade war that's battered stock markets around the world. Democratic control of the House can only make things worse for Trump as scores of investigations begin fueled by subpoenas. And then there's that whole implicated as a felon thing. Republicans are worried about a slew of things. In lieu of a plan, Trump plans to shrug off whatever Mueller says, convinced his supporters will always believe him and that he will simply tweet his responses. Trump fired his stabilizing chief of staff and announced a replacement who turned down the job. And Trump didn't have a plan B. There was no second or third choice in mind. So the search for a new chief of staff continued and continues at a time Trump's White House needs organized strength, not rudderless weakness. The top candidate, Tea Party Republican Mark Meadows, has now also bowed out. Other presidents have put together war rooms packed with lawyers when their presidencies were embattled. Trump has no war room, no strategy, and combined with everything else, that's made Republicans nervous or just plain tired of it all. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon says, quote, the president can't trust the GOP to be there when it counts, adding, they don't feel any responsibility to stand with Trump. On Trump's favorite network, Fox News, Tucker Carlson appears to have already jumped ship. In an interview to promote his new book, Carlson was asked what he thinks of Trump's two years in office. I don't think he's capable, said Carlson, who went on to say he can't stand the bragging and the self-praise. Carlson was asked if Trump had kept his campaign promises. No, said Carlson. Carlson had supported Trump's aggressive immigration policy. But, says Carlson, he knows very little about the legislative processes, hasn't learned anything, hasn't surrounded himself with people that can get it done, so it's mostly his fault. It appears Steve Bannon is right. Trump cannot count on Republicans in Congress or even the Fox News Channel. Except for those still inside the Trump bubble, Americans are seeing all of this. A new CNN poll shows that fewer than 3 in 10 voters approve of Trump's handling of the Russia investigation, down 4% from last month. 57% of us now disapprove of his approach to Mueller. Nearly 6 in 10 of us think Russian interference in a U.S. election is a serious crime that should be investigated, while only 35% of us say this is all just political. 54% of us believe Trump is lying about the investigation, while only 36% of us believe him. Exactly half of us believe Mueller will implicate Trump personally in wrongdoing. The 43% who said that wouldn't happen were proven incorrect this past week. 44% of us believe Trump unethically covered up the Trump Tower Moscow deal, while 26% of it say it was just unwise. Only 23% agree with Trump that he did nothing wrong. 23% agree with Trump. 23% is not what winning looks like. Trump may be counting on a new attorney general to end his troubles. He's chosen William Barr, who served in that job for a year under George H.W. Bush, arguing in favor of pardons for those involved in the Iran-Contra scandal. If Barr is confirmed by a Republican Senate that seems to like him, then he would take over supervision of the Russia investigation, which he could then end. Barr may be inclined to do just that, having written a defense of Trump's firing of James Comey and having criticized the Mueller team as partisan and saying Trump was not wrong to call for an investigation of the Clinton Foundation. Democrats plan to grill Barr about these things, but Republicans will still be the Senate majority. Still, because of the views he has expressed, William Barr may have to recuse himself from the Russia investigation 
the very thing that made Trump eternally angry at Jeff Sessions. Trump remains defiant. He said on Tuesday in an interview with Reuters, the people would revolt if he were impeached, adding, it's hard to impeach somebody who hasn't done anything wrong. It's the season for giving and getting to Salon.com's Bob Seska, giving I told you so's and getting apologies. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. Wednesday, December 12, was another historic day in the ongoing disintegration of both the Trump presidency and the Trump brand, with Trump the man-baby moving ever closer to impeachment and ignominy. We learned that Trump's personal lawyer and bagman, Michael Cohen, will likely spend the next three years in a federal prison. It's also a possibility that the sentence will be reduced if Cohen decides to fully cooperate with prosecutors in the Southern District of New York with the same degree of bean spilling as he's performed for Robert Mueller's team of untouchables. But at least for now, Cohen faces three years as a ward of the government, three years he'll never get back, three years without his family or his children. Now, sure, the chances are pretty solid that he'll eventually sashay out of his prison cell and onto the set of Dancing with the Stars. Then again, Cohen might also be viewed by history as the John Dean of this Trump-Russia saga, representing the closest Trump confidant to provide testimony and documentation implicating Trump and Trump's children in a series of crimes so awful that their family brand should be humiliated out of existence. We're allowed to dream, aren't we? Wednesday's events were preceded by a tumultuous Friday in which the extent of Cohen's cooperation was outlined in a sentencing memo that, among other things, verified several aspects of Trump's legal jeopardy. We now have confirmation that prosecutors in Manhattan and D.C. have accumulated volumes of evidence suggesting Trump and his inner circle conspired with Russia and that Trump himself dictated Cohen's hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal in order to influence the outcome of the election. Later in the day Wednesday, we also learned that the National Enquirer, along with its publisher David Pecker, will be cooperating with prosecutors, another nail in Trump's political coffin. Sure, we don't have a verdict yet on the usual suspects, but we're now privy to the extent of the cases against Trump in these particular areas. We also know there's likely to be more details dropping in the coming weeks and months, enough to justify articles of impeachment in the House of Representatives and the likely passage of those articles, triggering an automatic trial in the Senate. It's also possible these charges could end up in a series of indictments against the Trumps. Simply put, Everything we've been talking about since July of 2016 is being rapidly confirmed on the record. Everything, and with much more to come. Starting now, there are more than a few human beings who owe us a series of apologies. The list of us begins with Hillary Clinton, then Barack Obama, and on down the line to journalists like Rachel Maddow and my friend Buzz Burbank, to national security experts like Michael Hayden, John Brennan, Malcolm Nance, and Tom Nichols, to Stephanie Miller and John Fugelsang, and so many more. I'd also like to toss onto the list our late friend Ches Pazienza, who, on our podcast together in late July of 2016, declared the Russian attack to be the biggest and most important news story of our time. Since we first began to report on the slow-motion train wreck that is Trump's participation in this colossal cyber attack and its equally colossal cover-up, there have been several groups of deniers who refuse to accept the reporting on the story and therefore refuse to accept our collective analysis that not only did Russia elect Trump, but that Trump was a willing participant in that endeavor, not to mention entire series of related malfeasance. I'll never forget how one of my colleagues, not naming names, emailed me once about my articles on Trump Russia, suggesting I was way off and that we needed to talk. Likewise, we all know at least one or two or a dozen friends who deleted us from their social media rosters due to our posts about the attack and Trump's involvement. In fact, one of my ex-friends on Facebook, a Bernie Sanders supporter and vocal Trump Russia denier, continues to this day to randomly stalk me in the comments below my articles on Salon.com. We've all heard the denials from Fox News, of course, but like my ex-friend, the Glenn Greenwald clique has also attempted to undermine and cast doubt upon everyone from Maddo to yours truly. I apologize in advance for this, but I can't help but to feel resentful of the people who perpetually tried to gaslight us about a series of crimes that couldn't have been more obvious from the get-go. Speaking for myself, I've seldom been more confident in a position I've taken on a major news story. 
as soon as I learned Russia was behind the hacking of the DNC and that they did so in order to help Trump, my spidey sense kind of knew that this would lead to reports of Trump's cooperation. We also knew from the beginning that a crime like this had to have copious unknowns lurking beneath the surface, the entirety of the iceberg beyond the exposed tip. We knew it all along, and we were right about nearly everything, and yet the doubters and deniers pegged us for tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists when that simply wasn't the case. There are conspiracy theories, and then there are conspiracy theories yanked from the syphilitic gray matter of Alex Jones and his copycats. This was no Alex Jones fever dream, nor was this a truther movement. Frankly, and again, forgive my boasting, but I consider myself to be a member of a political faction that's been generally right about most issues and news items. We were right about Trump and Russia. We were right about the crooks and Trump's loop. We were right about WMD and Iraq, for that matter. We were right about the entire folly of the Iraq war. We were right about the efficacy of the Affordable Care Act and the Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the stimulus of 2009. We, including men like Bernie Sanders and Tom Hartman, were right about the early warning signs of the Great Recession. We were right about Trump's ridiculous fear-mongering about the caravans. We were right about Trump's reckless tax cuts and the deficit those cuts would create. We've been right for decades about the climate crisis, too. And it's not just that we're smarter— It's that we read the work of smart people. My hope is that one of these days soon, more Americans will begin to look to those of us who've been correct more often than not and to see that perhaps we're not merely screeching into the void. But for now, I just want an apology from everyone who thought I was nuts for my often shouty pronouncements about what Chez called the biggest story of our lifetimes. And from there, let's resolve to stop screwing around and to start listening to expert observers with solid track records rather than indulging our own stubbornness or perpetuating our social media brands. Trump is a criminal and an illegitimate president. And with every new day comes additional verification that it's all true. All of it. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, my friend. Get more of Bob at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with Bob again on Tuesday. Why we're facing another government shutdown and why Trump country now believes in climate change. After this. Thank you again for using my Amazon link at buzzburbank.com for your holiday shopping. Your use of that link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. So please bookmark it as your shopping button. I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make, so it really helps power this free weekly report. Now, if you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button. At your desktop, it's just under the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, It's just under the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And thanks again. Funding the U.S. government became a reality TV show this week as President Trump met with Democratic congressional leaders, the Senate's Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi of the House. Live cameras had been welcomed into the room by the host of Celebrity Apprentice as he threatened to shut down the government if Democrats refused to spend $5 billion taxpayer dollars on the border wall he said would be funded by Mexico. The wall was, after all, what he had promised his only remaining friends, the red-hatted supporters who still chant at his rallies, build the wall, build the wall. With TV cameras in the room, Trump believed he was in his wheelhouse. He'd always been the in-control master of proceedings in NBC's primetime lineup. The president believed that with cameras in the room, Chuck and Nancy would be cornered into admitting their no votes on the wall would cause the government to shut down. But there were two of them and one of him, since we can't count Vice President Mike Pence, who sat virtually frozen as if trying not to be seen during the tragic comedy that played out on TV. It was more housewives than apprentice, perhaps especially when Nancy Pelosi said Trump's manhood seemed to somehow depend on this wall. Chuck Schumer pointed out that Trump's claimed repeatedly that the wall's already been built and that border security is already under his tight control, so why the wall tantrum? Trump was having none of it, but remained cornered between insisting he already has border security while at the same time demanding $5 billion for a wall to achieve border security. 
and he would hold the government, including the Department of Homeland Security, hostage until he gets what he wants. Trump was behaving in a way familiar to many parents, taking the government and going home when he doesn't get his way. A temper tantrum, as Schumer described it, to Trump's face and before the cameras. Chuck and Nancy kept at it, and they got Trump to give them exactly what they had come for. To end this ugly and seemingly pointless meeting, Trump took the bait and the blame for what appears to be a looming government shutdown over a budget agreed upon by Republicans and Democrats, but rejected by Trump because there's no money for his wall. So Trump said it, quote, you want to know something? I'll take it. Yes, if we don't get what we want one way or the other, whether it's through you, through the military, through anything, I will shut down the government. I tell you what, I am proud to shut down the government for border security. I will take the mantle. I will be the one to shut it down. I'm not going to blame you for it. I will take the mantle of shutting down, and I'm going to shut it down for border security. End quote. In case you missed it in there... Our commander-in-chief says that if Democrats don't pay for his wall, he'll order the military to build it. In Trump's tragic, dangerous, and embarrassingly uncomfortable game show, Chuck and Nancy scored the winning points. The government shutdown, if there is one, is on him. He said so himself. We have learned a great deal in this past week about Trump's defense of a Saudi crown prince and Trump's defense of Saudis as weapons customers. We have learned, for example, that after the 2016 election, a Saudi-funded lobbyist paid for 500 rooms at Trump's D.C. hotel over a period of three months. The Saudis had been flying in U.S. military veterans from around the country to help them lobby for a proposed U.S. law that the Saudis opposed. The Saudis had been putting up the vets at hotels in suburban northern Virginia, but that changed after the election when the Saudis spent nearly $300,000 to house the veterans at Trump's place instead. Until recently, the vets didn't know the Saudis were behind this and that they had been used. They were just told they'd be staying at a Trump hotel in the capital of the nation for which they had fought. Earlier this year, the Trump Organization paid over $150,000 into the U.S. Treasury to supposedly cover the money that it had made from foreigners. But that's just a little over half the money the Saudis alone spent for just those three months of rooms at nearly 800 bucks a night. We learned that following the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, Jared Kushner kept in touch with his friend Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. In fact... Kushner offered advice to the prince about how to weather the storm that had pinned a murder so squarely on the prince. We know this because White House protocol requires that at least one member of the National Security Council be present for such conversations. And at least one of them has now spoken with the New York Times about Kushner's calls. But Republican Senator Marco Rubio isn't buying it. Quoting him, there's no way 17 people close to the prince got a charter plane, flew to a third country, went into a consulate, chopped up a man, and flew back, and he didn't know about it, much less order it. Senator Lindsey Graham agrees, and the two of them are on board with Democrats, backing a resolution that supports the CIA's conclusion that Jamal Khashoggi was ordered killed by Jared Kushner's friend, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Trump lost support that day from a number of leading Republican senators over his support of an allegedly murderous prince and for placing the importance of weapon sales over the life of an American-based journalist. Jamal Khashoggi this week was named Time Magazine's Person of the Year. But on Tuesday evening, Trump declared that he would ignore the findings, continue to ignore the findings of U.S. intelligence agencies, and ignore the findings of the United States Senate, and continue to support Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. That worries U.S. intelligence officials. That and a lot of other Trump positions that counter reality. Intelligence officials are frustrated because Trump won't listen to the professionals who are trying to serve the president. Not on the Saudis, not on our Russian election interference. He ignores their findings on Iran and North Korea, and he ignores their national security warnings about climate change. The Trumpian assault on the environment and the planet continued this week, as it has most weeks. 
The Trump administration made proposals this week that would roll back not just safeguards implemented by the Obama administration, but those of the administrations of both Presidents Bush. The Obama rule limits pollution in 60% of the nation's waterways to protect our supply of drinking water. Large bodies of water had already been protected, but not so for the streams and wetlands that drain into those big bodies. The Obama EPA changed that. The Trump administration says the Obama rule wasn't about safe water, but about a power grab by the federal government. Dropping the rule will benefit, among others, real estate developers and golf course owners, of which Trump is both. The Trump administration also told a bird called the sage grouse and the unspoiled scenery around it to go to hell. And in its plans to strip federal protections away from this ground-nesting bird, companies would now be able to drill for oil and dig for minerals over 9 million acres of the American West and across the nation. Under the law, this could continue until the sage grouse becomes an endangered species. The Trump administration has been just as enthusiastic about fossil fuels as it's been about brushing off the damage those fuels continue to do. The Trump administration has been enthusiastic about fossil fuels to an embarrassing degree, as proven to the world last week at the planet's biggest climate conference. Trump's White House advisor on climate and energy bravely told a crowd of 200 conference attendees, and I quote, no country should have to sacrifice economic prosperity or energy security in pursuit of environmental sustainability. The crowd roared with laughter and not the flattering kind. Dozens of people started chanting protests at this American pushing fossil fuels at a conference to address the world's most pressing problem. The U.S. is not alone in this position. The new president of Brazil is threatening to cut down the Amazon rainforest for development and drilling for oil. The Amazon is the world's biggest source of oxygen as its trees drink up the carbon dioxide that would otherwise leave us breathless. But the laughable Trump advisor's speech at the UN was for show, perhaps. Trump and that top advisor may or may not know that career professionals at the State Department are still working with representatives from other countries on possible climate solutions, according to the Washington Post. So that's something. And guess who wants something done about man-made climate change? Guess who else? Farmers in Kansas. While our focus has been on the latest news that the polar ice caps are warming at a rate much faster than the rest of the planet, while we watch the fires in California and the hurricanes in the south and rising seas in so many coastal towns, droughts and floods have befallen the nation's main food source, the farms of the Midwest. Climate change, the farmers want us to know, has made it harder to grow crops, and it's made those crops more vulnerable to insects and disease and extreme heat. So they're now spending more money on seeds and machinery to maintain the fields that nature once cared for. Farmers want us to know it will cost billions of dollars to adapt to this new climate that dried up Kansas and put Iowa and Missouri underwater. Those floodwaters wash nutrients out of the soil, nutrients that then have to be replaced if we expect to ever grow more food there. Your future bacon and hamburgers are breathing polluted air. Farmers are also frustrated by pressure from environmental groups, the Sierra Club in particular, which criticizes ranchers for raising cattle and farmers for growing corn, leaving some farmers with very few affordable, profitable options. But climate change denial is fading in Trump country, in the red states of Missouri and Kansas and Iowa, to name three. The farmers are now listening to scientists, and scientists are now listening to the farmers. And that's progress. Trump has named as his choice for the new U.S. ambassador to the United Nations former Fox News personality Heather Nauert. This could be interesting since Nauert has absolutely no experience in international diplomacy. She once gave D-Day as an example of the long history of close relations between the U.S. and Germany. D-Day was an Allied attack on Germany led by the U.S., which began the defeat of the Nazis on the Western Front. And Heather Nauert, who rose to fame on Fox during the Monica Lewinsky scandal, made her D-Day remark this year 
while serving as the spokeswoman for the U.S. State Department. She brought no government experience to that job either. Nowert currently oversees a $1.2 billion budget and oversees nearly 1,000 State Department employees. If approved by the Senate, she would also become a member of Trump's cabinet. Now there are 41, at least 41, new Democratic faces in the House of Representatives in Washington as most of the dust settles from the 2018 midterm elections. And Californians have all but kicked the Republican Party out of their state, which now has only seven Republicans in its state legislature out of 53 seats. The latest Republican to concede is David Valadeo, who's represented Central California for five years. He had to concede after initially being declared the winner. The new guy is engineer T.J. Cox, who has now succeeded in his second run at Congress. Democrats also swept all four of the Republican seats in the legendarily Republican Orange County. Gone also are longtime Republican Congressman Daryl Issa and Dana Rohrabacher, known even among his colleagues as Russia's congressman, partly because the Kremlin actually gave Rohrabacher a code name. He's gone. In California government... Almost all the Republicans are gone. And then there's the race that hasn't been settled in North Carolina, where Republicans, who've so often cried voter fraud, are now accused of it themselves. Republicans were warned of the fraud in late spring of this year after one of their own narrowly lost a primary race because of a lopsided count of mail-in absentee ballots in Bladen County. Republican Robert Pittenger got 17 mail-in votes. Republican Mark Harris got 437. Pittenger alerted the North Carolina Republican Party and the National Republican Congressional Committee, but they'd already moved on to beating the Democrat that Mark Harris would face on November 6th. By the time of that spring primary, Bladen County already had a reputation, so Bob Pittenger knew just where to look, and he was right. But by that time, no one was listening. And then... Democrat Dan McCready narrowly lost to Republican Mark Harris with a lopsided count of absentee ballots in Bladen County, the same fate that had befallen Harris's primary challenger. McCready has now withdrawn his concession, and the North Carolina Elections Board has refused to certify that race. The National Republican Congressional Committee denies Robert Pittenger said anything to them about fraud. Meanwhile, their candidate is now under subpoena and has disclosed that he owes $34,000 to a company that sent people door-to-door -door in Bladen County to collect absentee ballots in what was labeled a get-out-the-vote effort. The man who led that effort has been accused of collecting absentee ballots illegally to try to flip the election for the Republican. In some cases, the door knockers reportedly filled out the ballots themselves and got whoever answered the door to sign it, sometimes beforehand, sometimes after. Mark Harris says he was unaware of any wrongdoing, is cooperating with investigators, and says he would support a new election if there was fraud. He may not get the chance... The investigation now reaches back to that primary race against Bob Pittenger back in May, since it now appears Harris shouldn't even have become the Republican nominee for that still-up-in-the-air congressional seat. Time machine. Congressional Democrats in Washington are investigating, and as the new majority, it will be up to them to decide who from North Carolina gets seated. Advantage McCready. And then... Make it 42 wins for the Democrats in the Trump era. And although Trump questioned the power and authority of Nancy Pelosi in Tuesday's Oval Office showdown, her handling of the president that day seems to have impressed the progressive Democrats in the House who've wrangled to replace Pelosi with someone younger. And yesterday, to unify the new Democratic House and to assure she could be Speaker for now... Pelosi agreed to step aside no later than 2022 to make way for new leadership, new blood. In the meantime, the rebels and the newcomers can watch and learn. It was two years ago that Republican lawmakers in North Carolina voted to strip the new incoming Democratic governor of some of the powers his Republican predecessor had employed. 
We just saw it happen again with Republican lawmakers in Michigan and Wisconsin. Legal experts, however, say that when these moves are decided in court, they will be ruled unconstitutional. The restrictions on North Carolina's Democratic governor have been ruled unconstitutional already, and we can expect the same results in Wisconsin and Michigan. Lame duck power grabs, say the experts, don't stick. Some of these new laws blur what's supposed to be a distinct line between what are supposed to be independent branches of government. And then there's the undermining of the will of the people, stripping power from the persons they elected to lead their state. And Democrats are already drawing up those lawsuits as the party of Trump suffers a really bad, awful, horrible year, which began with that election about six weeks ago. Besides their government ethics bill and scores of investigations, a bolstered Democratic Congress has put gun control high on its list. It starts in the Republican-controlled Senate, where Democrats Chris Murphy and Richard Blumenthal are co-sponsoring a bill for the 20 young children slaughtered by gunfire at their Connecticut elementary school. In the new Democratic House, there'll be legislation to force background checks on all gun sales. While the NRA is weakened at this moment, and perhaps facing its own demise, Democrats plan to be more aggressive in their pursuit of gun sanity. It could have come at a better time, but it may finally be coming after a report this week that 2018 is already the worst year on record for gun violence in schools. This record dates back to 1970. That worst year conclusion is from a study by postgraduates at the U.S. Naval Academy. But this was the year of Parkland, Florida, and Santa Fe, Texas, in which a total of 27 people were killed by gunfire. There have been 94 school shootings so far this year, up 60% from the record set 12 years ago in 2006. The neo-Nazi who killed Heather Heyer with his car in Charlottesville, Virginia, will spend the rest of his life in prison. 21-year-old James Field was in town to march with other white supremacists at a right-wing rally that had attracted his type from as far away as California. The deadly rally Trump would say involved very fine people on both sides. Heather Heyer was out on that late March day to protest the brazen presence of that type in her town. She was at the center of the crowd of anti-white supremacist protesters that Field rammed his car into, backed up, and rammed again. Fields was convicted on 10 charges, including vehicular homicide. If hell freezes over, we've found the people who can repave it. The lower 48 states continue to marvel at the breathtakingly fast road repairs in Alaska following its recent magnitude 7 earthquake. Roads that had crumbled into jigsaw puzzle-like pieces are now paved and smoothed, lines painted and open to traffic, despite the sub-freezing temperatures that stop road construction as we know it down here. And they repaired one road inside of 100 hours. The road near you they've been working on since the Clinton administration? How's that project going? What's best for the planet, a live Christmas tree or artificial? Baby, it's cold inside, and other tales from the Bah Humbug Files in the third and final segment, up next. If you're looking for gift ideas for the holidays, get them the Heller Bluetooth earbuds from tweakedaudio.com. The Hellers are wireless to hook them up with their favorite songs, phone calls, and podcasts like this one. And the Heller will stay in their ears with five hours of use and a hundred hours of standby time between USB charges. The Hellers have a built-in mic, a storage pouch, and comfortable gels in three sizes. Tweaked Audio's wired earbuds come in a range of colors. You can even get buds in sets of two or three. You certainly cannot beat the prices for this level of quality, guaranteed. And it's a perfect holiday gift. The shipping's free anywhere on the planet. And because everything sounds better on tweaked audio earbuds, you can get an extra one-third off their already great prices if you check out with the code BBNC at tweakedaudio.com. Thank you for supporting this news through tweakedaudio.com, all my other great sponsors, and through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. The case of a Seattle woman is warning people to only use pure water in their neti pots. A neti pot is a small pitcher or vessel used to pour water through your sinuses to clear them. 
Lots of people use them and swear by them. But this 69-year-old Seattle woman died after using tap water in the vessel instead of the recommended boiled or distilled water. Organisms in her tap water infected her brain. Brain-eating amoebas ate her brain until she died. There have been three similar cases in the U.S. in the past two years. The weak links in food safety this week are made by the Jimmy Dean Sausage People. 14 tons of Jimmy Dean Heat and Serve original sausage links made with pork and turkey have been recalled on account of possible bits of metal from processing machines. No one's gotten injured so far as we know, but the USDA has designated this a Class 1 recall, its most serious ranking. The CDC, meanwhile, is reminding people this holiday season also not to eat raw cookie dough. A lot of us think we're helping the environment when we stop promoting the killing of live trees by switching to the reusable artificial tree. Well, environmentalists say we're wrong. The artificial trees are mostly plastic, but built and configured in ways that make them impossible to recycle when, say, the built-in bulbs burn out. And it doesn't take many plastic trees to fill up a lot of landfill space. And in a landfill, the plastic creates methane gas that erodes the ozone layer 25 times faster than carbon dioxide. Environmental scientists say an artificial tree has a carbon footprint twice the size as the one created in the killing of a live tree. If you want a live tree but still want to help the planet, buy one that's locally grown, they say, not one that's been shipped in on fossil fuels. Ralph, still breaking the internet and the competition for the third straight week. But movie attendance has slipped now in the run-up to Christmas and New Year's. The Grinch is second and Creed II is third. For all the movie trailers, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. Beloved comedy actress Carol Burnett will be the first to receive the Carol Burnett Award. At least that's what it'll be called for future honorees after the TV legend accepts a special Golden Globe Award crafted just for her. She'll receive that award for achievement in television at age 85 on January 6th in the Golden Globes broadcast on NBC. Kathy Lee Gifford is leaving the Today Show after 11 years, breaking up a TV friendship with co-host Hoda Kotb. A teary Kathy Lee said she had been on TV for 120 years and had never worked with such great people. And for however you may feel about Charlie Sheen, he's done a good thing, a big thing. Charlie Sheen was able to announce on Twitter this week that he has been sober for a year now. He posted a photo of his one-year chip from Alcoholics Anonymous. Sheen has been sober before, once for 11 years, until the day he was tested positive for the AIDS virus when he says he immediately wanted to eat a bullet. But Sheen says he knows he has it in himself, this ability to stay sober. For whatever we think of Charlie Sheen, most of us know someone who has struggled to get or stay sober or someone who is still struggling. The problem, she feels, is eels in seals. A veterinarian in Hawaii who's also an expert on monk seals, has, like others, studied multiple photographs of monk seals who got eels stuck up their nostrils and seemed perfectly fine with it. It's not fine. It's weird. It's a newly discovered phenomena in a species already in danger. The eels are dead by the time they're removed by humans who can't follow every monk seal around all day like toddlers to make sure they don't put eels up their noses. It does happen a lot more with inexperienced baby monk seals. Scientists have only untested theories at this point. Monk seals eat eels, and maybe the eel responds by trying to hide in the nostril that's right there. Another theory is that one young monk seal started snorting eel, and then the other kids started doing it. Scientists hope it's not the start of a trend, something perhaps that, like eating laundry pellets, will fade. Meanwhile, the current plan is to find a way to teach the seals to make better choices. It cost them nearly 3600 bucks, but the Mayweather family of Swansea, Illinois, has their bobcat back. First, 44-year-old Lakeisha Mayweather had to plead guilty to unlawful possession of a dangerous animal. 
The 19-pound bobcat, a family pet named Capone, had been seized by the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. Then, Mayweather had to pay over $3,500 to the Treehouse Wildlife Center that had housed and cared for Capone since the day he was seized, plus 50 bucks in court costs. Then Mayweather had to get the proper permits from the state's Natural Resources Department and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Having done all of that, Capone the Bobcat will be home for Christmas with the Mayweather family. Good kitty. It was a leaping lemur along I-4 north of Orlando where the highway patrol had pulled over a vehicle that appeared to have an intoxicated driver. It was a pickup truck pulling what looks like a horse trailer, hitting other vehicles as it weaved through traffic. Dashcam video shows the officers approaching the driver when one of them notices a lemur standing on its hind legs. Lemurs look like an odd mix of monkey, raccoon, squirrel, and cat. They have tiny little heads and big bug eyes, and it was dark. The driver, who was arrested for DUI, told the officers to be careful of Miko the lemur. He bites... The officers quickly called it in to state wildlife. Further investigation shows the 27-year-old Florida man didn't just have a lemur. Shane Taylor also had other exotic creatures, including a tortoise, a goat, a parrot, and a wallaby. What he didn't have was a lawyer. In Anchorage, Alaska, a couple's doorbell rang at an unexpected hour. They checked the security cameras looking for prankster kids with their ding-dong ditch game or maybe another aftershock from the earthquake. But that's when they discovered there was a moose at the door facing away from the house. The button got bumped by the moose's caboose. Let's call this part bah humbug. Baby, it's gotten cold inside. After a hundred complaints, the program director of radio station KOIT in San Francisco pulled the song Baby It's Cold Outside from his playlist. And that brought more complaints from people who wanted their holiday classic back. A listen-at-work station in a liberal city was between a lump of coal and a hard place. The song had already been in the crosshairs of some even before the Me Too movement. In the Me Too post-Brett Kavanaugh America, the song was a target. Gone from 96.5 FM were the words, I ought to say, no, 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 sir, mind if I move closer, and say, what's in this drink? The Internet's alive with Me Too updated versions of the song that are comically politically correct, but your Listen at Workstation is playing it safe. Meanwhile, somewhere else on the dial, some other station is playing Robin Thicke, who's singing, I know you want it. The people in one Pennsylvania neighborhood got so fed up with an unrepaired, dangerously deep pothole, they took action themselves. They dropped a fake fir tree into the hole and decorated it with ornament balls and a star, making it both attractive and a safety warning to other drivers. Videos and photos of the pothole tree went viral to the embarrassment of Philadelphia city officials. The City of Brotherly Love's Department of Public Works says the pothole will be fixed this week and that Marietta Spack, who had found the fake tree in her attic, will get her tree back. Quoting her, I thought it would look nice in the hole. Just north of Daytona Beach, Florida, a California woman who had just moved there had an unusual holiday greeting spelled out in lights across her high-rise balcony. Bah humbug, it read. Her neighbors, said the landlord, were coming unglued, and he asked the woman to take down the display. The woman complied, saying she didn't mean to offend anyone, and that the Ebenezer Scrooge quote had always been one of her favorites. In Cape Coral, Florida, as families and children gathered Saturday night for the city's Festival of Lights festivities, at one point a man screamed, There's no Santa Claus! He was wrong, of course, but police said they couldn't arrest him because he was exercising his free speech and because he didn't use a megaphone. But there was no unringing that grinchy bell, just gentle assurances, perhaps, that it was fake news. But the Grinch can be found well outside of Florida, including the Midwest. In Greenwood, Indiana, a man was captured on video driving up in his black SUV, walking up to the 12-foot inflatable snowman that graced the Arnold family's front lawn, getting back into his SUV, backing up, and then driving through the front yard, flattening Frosty. 
The Arnolds say they were inside watching a Christmas movie when they heard a loud pop. Some Grinch, probably, says Mr. Arnold. And it was a Florida man who ultimately bought the house that we saw in outdoor shots in the 1983 movie A Christmas Story. 42-year-old Brian Jones of Florida says he made the money to buy that Cincinnati house by selling replicas of the leg lamp that's the center of its own story in a film about a boy who wants a rifle that fires BBs and a thing in the stock that tells the time. Brian is now charging three grand a night for a family to stay there during the holidays. The rest of the year, he'd like you to know, it's much, much cheaper to stay there. But thanks to Brian's renovations, you can sit on the family couch, peek up the leg lamp, or crawl under the kitchen sink. The memo was just supposed to go to employees of the job training division of the Utah Department of Corrections, but thanks to a reply-all button mispoked, it invited 22,000 Utah state workers to a potluck dinner. The good news is it's potluck. The bad news is there isn't room at the Corrections Department's training facility for 22,000 people. But when the person behind the mistake tried to correct it, she sent her disinvites to all 22,000 state workers, including the job training staff at the Department of Corrections for whom the party was being thrown. The woman got swamped with responses to both emails, a lot of them poking fun at the reply-all debacle. The organizer says we're still having the potluck for just her department, adding we might order a few extra meat and cheese trays just in case we have some extra people. And there's some Christmas spirit right there. Like a scene out of Willy Wonka, a coating of milk chocolate covered, repaved a roadway in Germany. In the cold weather, the molten chocolate hardened and a couple dozen firefighters were called in to chip it away with pickaxes. They then used shovels and hot water to get rid of the remaining bits. The search for Augustus Gloop continues. That kid would have loved the vending machine they had last week on the campus of Ohio State University. The Ohio Port Council installed in the Ag Building a vending machine that dispensed cooked ready-to-eat bacon from Smithfield, Hormel, and Sugardale. In that two-short, one-week promotion, for a buck, students could get a whole strip of bacon or a handful of bacon bites. The money that went into the machine now goes to the school's meat science program. And finally, the kids at a school in Delray Beach, Florida, were not so lucky. A high school junior got this on video, a rat climbing the rows of cupcakes, candy bars, nuts, and chips inside a school vending machine. The school locked down the vending machine, an exterminator was called in, and the vending company was notified. You can't reach up into one of those machines, but a rat can. Care for a bag of Cheetos? I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.